the aftermath of the Nakba legalizes and formalizes that process that took place during the Nakba, but also continues it, gives it this air of legitimacy because all of a sudden now these actions of ethnic cleansing and forced expulsion are taking place by a state as opposed to Zionist gangs and militias. You have the state taking a number of measures to ensure that Palestinians continue to be expelled from their land, that Palestinians who were expelled are unable to come back, and that the land that is left behind is immediately taken for the state and redistributed to settlers arriving from other countries. I think the first law was like, honestly, fuck Palestinians. Okay, literally, you're not wrong. Hello and welcome to episode 34 of the Palestine Pod, the weekly podcast where we break down the latest headlines dealing with Palestine from all over the world and bring you stories, commentary, and interviews with the aim of supporting the Palestinian struggle for justice and equal rights. I'm one of your hosts, Lara E. You might know me from Instagram as at Gossam Girl, and I'm joined by my co-host, Mikey B. What's up, y'all? Mikey B on TikTok, Michael Scherzer on Instagram. And you can call me Mikey Intifada if you think chasing the Israeli ambassador out of a public meeting is terrorism, but chasing people out of their houses is a-okay. Yeah, they, they're really sensitive about that. You know, they, they, they want to commit ethnic cleansing and they want to be an apartheid state, but they also want to be received with open arms and a celebratory applause everywhere they go. And it's like, you can't have it both ways. Yeah, they want to murder people and be left alone. Yes. Yeah. Well, tough luck for them. Before we get into today's episode, please like, comment, and subscribe if you hang out with us on YouTube. And if you're listening on a podcast app, subscribe and leave a review. As always, you can find our full episodes and sources on palestinepod.com. And if you want to get involved in the conversation, feel free to reach out to us at palestinepod at gmail.com and give us a follow over on Instagram at the Palestine pod. We're also still going strong on Patreon. So if you love the Palestine pod and you want to support us, join our Patreon where you get early access to all Palestine pod episodes every week an additional one to two podcasts per week, including our latest podcast that we call the Patreon pod. It's a little more laid back politics, Palestine, pop culture, you get it all. And we are still hosting our monthly zoom happy hours with our Patreon subscribers only. So really exciting stuff. Check it out on patreon.com slash Palestine pod. Yeah. It's just us today. Solo. Back to basics. We've got some amazing guests in the next couple of weeks. It's going to be fire. Yeah. I'm really looking forward to the next two months. It's going to be great. Thanks for listening. If you, if you made it this far, episode 34 and you're an OG. Somebody said I could listen to Lara talk all day. And I was like, you could play episodes one through 24 and literally do that. (laughs) That's pretty good. (laughs) And then you could play episodes 25 to 50 and listen to me for two days when we get to episode 50. We're we're getting there, though. I was was like, wait, we're on 34. (laughs) We're getting there. I have a Matthew on. (laughs) We're getting there. We're getting there. Yeah. Yeah, we yeah. will be at 50 pretty soon. 
We'll be at 50 pretty soon. I think last time I checked, we were at 60,000 downloads. Yep. Which is amazing. And again, thank you so much to everybody who listens every week and who makes us a part of your routine. And, and has- shout out, especially our Patreon crew. Yes. You know, rocking with us behind the paywall. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Things get a little more personal behind the paywall, you know, so. Yeah. Yeah, it's been it's been a, it's been a very rewarding and educational and challenging ride, I think. For me personally, like it's pushed me to like learn more and to be consistent and yeah, I mean It's like what Max was talking about, right? To keep showing up. Keep showing up. To keep showing up mentally to keep showing up physically yeah. to keep showing up emotionally all of that the main thing i wanted to talk about today is it's we're going to go back in history a little bit we've been covering a lot of news a lot of current events we've been doing a lot of commentary lately on what's been going on and sometimes i think it's helpful to go back in time to kind of get an understanding of why we are where we are today and how we got here. There's a lot of historical bits that are, you know, sprinkled throughout the Palestine Pod episodes and we talk about a lot of the really sort of turning point events in Palestinian history certainly in the last 100 years that really mark the gradual loss over time of Palestinian land, the erasure of Palestinians as a people with rights as a collective, and the establishment of the settler colony in its place, the support for the settler colony by outside forces, initially the British and then the US. And so these are all themes that we visit time and time again on the show. But today, there's something that I was recently reading up on in preparation for one of our upcoming episodes, which probably is the episode I'm most excited about. We're going to be in conversation with Professor Noura Harakat in a couple of weeks. And so, of course, I was (laughs) rereading her book because I read it the first time when it came out, uh, right when right when it came out, and it's there's so much in there that I really wanted to have it fresh in my mind. So I was going back and I was looking through it, and I realized we haven't actually covered the aftermath of the Nakba. And I think the aftermath of the Nakba is really, really important because while the Nakba is this sort of massive, violent expulsion of the majority of the Palestinian population and the 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 theft of the majority of our land, the aftermath of the Nakba essentially legalizes and formalizes and continues, not only legalizes and formalizes that process that took place during the Nakba, but also continues it, gives it this air of legitimacy because all of a sudden now these actions of ethnic cleansing and forced expulsion are taking place by a state as opposed to a non-state actor, as opposed to you know the Zionist gangs and militias. Not only do you have sort of this this colonial violence now being legitimized by the state of Israel, 
But you have the state taking a number of measures to ensure that Palestinians continue to be expelled from their land, that Palestinians who were expelled are unable to come back, and that the land that is left behind either by those who get expelled after 1948 or who were expelled during uh, the Nakba is immediately taken for the state and redistributed to settlers arriving from other countries. And so I really wanted to get a little bit deeper into this, this theme. It shows us how Israel essentially starts using the law. Basically, it's like the, the, the moment in time when Israel starts to pass these discriminatory laws, these laws that, that treat Palestinians differently than those newly arrived Jewish immigrants, right? And so this is a theme that we will continue to see until today. And this is certainly, this disparity in treatment is the foundation for the apartheid state that we know today. Hey, you think there are any laws on the book that aren't discriminatory? Honestly, no. I think the first law was like, honestly, fuck Palestinians. Okay, literally, you're not wrong. Like, was... l- like literally. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. So well, I just guessed. You know what I mean? <laughs> let's get. I did into just it. guess. I thought, you know, the first thing that they do when they get a, a piece of paper and a pen is just start trashing y'all. So I figured. So Professor Nora writes, after the 1948 war, an estimated 160,000 native Palestinians who had not fled or been expelled during the war remained either in their homes or internally displaced within the new state. Although they were small in number, they posed an existential and demographic challenge to the Zionist settler sovereignty. So Israel obviously then sought to remove, dispossess, or contain them. And it did that by incorporating the structure of exception into its everyday system of governance, placing them outside the law by racializing their presence as a threat physically in terms of demographics and metaphysically to, for instance, the claim of Jewish temporal and spatial continuity. Jewish temporal, that sounds delicious. (laughs) Jewish temporal and spatial continuity. Basically, what she's saying is the, the new state finds a way to justify the exceptional and distinct treatment under the law of Palestinians under the pretext of emergency. The first time that the Israeli Provisional National Council convened, this was the precursor to the Knesset, they declared a state of emergency. And this is honestly something that we see all the time. Anytime states want to deprive a population of their rights, they just declare a state of emergency, right? We've seen this in France. That is so like them too. It's the first time yeah. It's the first time that they're meeting and they're like, guys, it's an emergency. <laughs> yes. How about we just ease into it, right? Yeah. How about we just, no, state of no. emergency day one. Day one, state of emergency. Okay. Very so they... extremely Jewish. <laughs> so they declare a state of emergency on day one. They adopt what is known as the defense emergency regulations, which are the same emergency provisions that the British had introduced to crush the Great Revolt, which was the Palestinian resistance that took place for a period of time in the 1930s against British colonialism. So they're adopting the same techniques as the British. And basically, they maintained the, this, this, this period of emergency regulations for 17 years after the end of the 1948 hostilities. 
Okay. So we're talking about a really long emergency. And let's just, you know, reiterate the reason the British left is because the terrorists like the Stern gang, the Zionist militias, they were just bombing random civilian outposts and military outposts that the British were occupying, right? They were making it so that the British were like, what are we even doing there? And eventually the British were like, all right, y'all, y'all figure it out. Yeah. So here you go. So, so this is the context we're in. We're, we're in the years after 1948. Israel declares a state of emergency immediately. And then is like, this emergency is going to last for a long time. In parallel, Ben-Gurion commissions a review of military rule to determine when it should end. And the review concludes that military rule was the state's optimal mechanism for preventing the return of Palestinian refugees and for forcibly removing the remaining population concentrations, expropriating their lands and replacing them with Jewish settlers. The forecast is never. (laughs) Literally. So the idea here is that they were going to regulate the population the Palestinian population under this exceptional legal framework that would not be subject to the normal you know, rules of procedure. And as a result would facilitate a massive population transfer. So we're talking about further f- forced expulsion in the years after the Nakba by means of the legal system that was applied to Palestinians only. Hey, I don't know. That sounds like a conspiracy to me, you know, like a group of people working in concert to do something illegal or nefarious. Yeah, it, I mean, it literally is because Ben Gurion himself said, and I quote, the military regime came into existence to protect the right of Jewish settlement in all parts of the state, end quote. So basically what you have here is Israel using the emergency regime to advance settler colonialism and its settler colonial ambitions, right? From day one, this is not something, again, people often talk about post-67. People talk about the occupation of the West Bank and Gaza. People talk about, oh, two states. People talk about the Oslo framework. And, you know, we should just go back to trying to implement what was agreed to in the 90s. And all of this is garbage because since day one, they've been on a very clear mission. Their leaders are quoted as saying so that, you know, their aim is to protect the right of Jewish settlement and to make sure the Palestinians are expelled. It actually started before day one, right? Yeah, of because course. Ben, ben Gurion had incorporated himself into the Ottoman Empire rule of Palestine. He went and studied there. He learned Arabic. He was he was doing like field research long before the Nekba even started. Yeah, of course. So it even goes back to before day one. And we can, you know, maybe someday we'll do an episode on before day one and we get really deep into that. But I wanted to focus on this particular time period because it's almost like you know we talk about the Nekba and then there's like a gap and then we talk about 67. And so I want to yeah. fill in that gap. And certainly. Yeah. So Palestine, Palestine is far more than the military assaults in the years that it happened. For sure. For sure. And there's a lot of resistance that is taking place in, in these moments where, 
nothing is taking place necessarily on a, on a large scale militarily, but things are still happening and rights are still being violated. So let's go on. In December 1948, the National Council lays the groundwork for mass Palestinian dispossession with the passage of emergency regulations regarding absentee properties. Okay, this law, this absentee properties law, is diabolical. For, for the layman, let me spell it out. It works like we kicked you out of your house, you left because you didn't want to die, and now the house belongs to us. That's the law. The house belongs to us because you you're not you're not back here and you're not present. You're not present and we won't let you come back. Yeah, why aren't you present? Oh yeah, we kicked you out. We won't let you come and back. And we won't let you come back. You. And we won't yeah. let you come back. Yeah. So basically but it, that's but it belongs <laughs> to them now. <laughs> yeah. And that's so, and that's the law, folks. That's the law. So this legislation authorizes the Israeli government to confiscate land under a temporary framework. It basically marks the beginning of a legal process that would transform all of these Palestinian lands into Israeli lands for Jewish settlement within a span of 12 years. The second phase of this process begins in 1950, so two years later, when the government passes a new law making the expropriation of Palestinian lands permanent. So in 1948, they go, yeah, we're doing this absentee properties law thing, but don't worry, it's just temporary. Then two years later, they're like, no, actually, you remember that thing from two years ago? It's permanent now, you know? So it's like this gradual sort of creeping, you know, theft, right? Kind of a perfect symbol for the occupation itself, right? Where they're like, hey, we won't be here for long. And then 70 years later, it's like, actually, this whole thing is ours now. Yeah, exactly. Oh, man. So who were the absentees, Michael? You just said it. The absentees included approximately 750,000 Palestinian refugees to whom Israel had denied the right of re-entry to, re- to claim their lands. They were the people Israel expelled during the Nakba. And they were, they're now languishing in refugee camps in Jordan and Syria and Lebanon. And they're like, we want to go home. And Israel's like, yeah, no, you can't. Oh, and by the way, your land is absentee land. So now it's ours. Yeah, there's a nice new family from Florida living in there. So you can't come back, you see. The absentees were also those who had remained on their uh you know, in the land of Palestine, but we're internally displaced people. So can you imagine being like five kilometers away from your house and not being able to go back and then being declared an absentee? And you're like, I'm literally right here. There was that very powerful image of that woman side of her home that was stolen from her like a long time ago. And then in a wheelchair now, I'll put up the picture because I just did a terrible job of yes. describing it. I know what photo you're talking about. So what's crazy is like, Every Palestinian has a story like that or a photo like that. I was browsing Facebook the other day and I see a photo posted by my great aunt who is married to my great uncle, who's my great uncle by, by marriage. And his family is from. That is how great aunts and uncles work. Yes. (laughs) His family is from 48, like Mm. only from 48, not from Gaza at all. And a few years ago, they took their grandchildren and children on a trip back to Palestine. They managed to take like a family trip. And they actually went back to the grandmother's house of my great uncle, the mother and the grandmother's house of my great uncle. And they were standing outside of it. And they took a similar picture. And they're all pointing. 
at the house smiling like this used to be our house. <laughs> I, I'll give you the picture. You can throw it up here. And it's like, what, what is this reality? Like what, what is, what is happening? These people it's are all still, wild. they're still alive. Their, their kids are still alive. Their grandkids are still alive and they're all there. They're just like, this is our house. And that's as close to the house as they can get. Like they can't go inside. I mean, the person who now lives there certainly doesn't want them like poking around, you know? Well, I don't think anybody wants anyone inside their house. And that's kind of the point, right? That's kind of what, <laughs> what started this whole thing is like, yes. The Thank people you. who are inside the house used to be outside the house, yes. right? And now the people who used to be inside the house are outside the house. Oh, man. And and it's all because of some legal framework from a totally illegitimate apartheid state. Okay, let's go on. So we've talked about the first phase where they're like, it's temporary. Second phase where they're like, just kidding, it's permanent. There's a phase three. The third phase of the legal transformation process it haunts you in the afterlife. <laughs> <laughs> That's like phase four. No, the third phase is the state's attempt to seize the properties of non-absent Palestinians. The tactic here is they use the emergency powers, right? Remember, we're in a state of emergency for like a billion years. And they say that certain Palestinian lands could be declared, quote unquote, closed areas at the discretion of the military for security reasons. And that's how they end up stealing land of Palestinians who are still there. And so this, this has a n- numerous consequences. Um, Professor Nora writes that this prevents Palestinians from cultivating their agricultural holdings, rendering those areas as wastelands. And once something becomes a wasteland, Israel passed another law to seize wastelands. You, they just make up whatever they want to allow them to take the most amount of land as possible from the indigenous population. Hey, you remember when you used to play board games with like your nephew and he would cheat and you'd be like, you're cheating. And he'd be like, no, I'm not. You know what I mean? (laughs) No, I'm not. I'm just winning. I'm just, this is how I I just win. This is how I play. Yeah. Yeah. This is my game. He would have like, he would have like all these rules that you didn't know about, you know, like secret rules. Hey, I remember another instance where the military declared a certain like Bedouin village, a firing zone, whatever that means. Right. Like a, a fire. That means they're shooting guns there. Yeah. Like, they don't they, have to shoot guns there. They, they decided Bedouins to, they decided have to been living there. Yeah. And it's like, they knocked down this Bedouin village, like multiple times. And the Bedouins just keep rebuilding every single time. Yeah. Hey, they just make it up. It's all made up. It's all made up. It's like, whose line is it anyways? Like yeah. the rules are all made up and the points don't matter. You know? <laughs> yeah, exactly. So what are the consequences of this in the first years? So from 1948 to 1953, the five years following the establishment of the state of Israel, 350 out of 370 new Jewish settlements were built on land owned by Palestinians. That's like basically the whole thing. You're settling on our land. By 1954, more than one third of Israel's Jewish population lived or worked on Arab absentee property. It's just little by little by little, right? I would say lot by lot by lot. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) 
<laughs> or that. Yeah. And that was actually a double entendre. It didn't even mean. Professor Nora gives the example of the villages of Iqrit and Kufr Birim in the Galilee. She writes that Israel forcibly removed the villagers in the fall of 1948, declares them present absentees. Okay. Then the areas were declared closed areas, and then the lands were seized and given to Jewish settlers. So Israel goes through this whole process that we just described. The Palestinian villagers then use the Israeli legal system to file for the right of return to their homes. The villagers from Iqrit won their case, and the Israeli Supreme Court issues a return order in their favor to the Minister of Defense. But the Minister of Defense is like, nah, I'm not going to enforce this return order. And he ordered the Israeli army to demolish the village instead. So the army destroyed the village on Christmas Day in 1951. I know. On Christmas? On Christmas. On Christmas, which actually, just so you know, like many of those Palestinians that were in those villages are Christian. Yeah, like Bethlehem, like legit like Christians. <laughs> like literal, like, the, like Christ- the first Christians. Like the descendants of Jesus. Like the descendants of Jesus. <laughs> and the state of Israel is like, let's go ahead and take this holiday and desecrate your village yes they so, really like hitting people on holidays you haven't you ever noticed yeah. that yeah, yeah, yeah. they, they, st- they stormed I mean, the al-aqsa mosque on ramadan. Um, ramadan exactly yeah may was ramadan like it was like they were dropping bombs on gaza during Eid. like it was thing Eid. Yes. yes they love they love destroying somebody else's celebration i think that's a tactic of psychological warfare where you don't even allow people the opportunity to enjoy the basic things that they could reprieve them from this hellish landscape they, you know, currently enjoy. Right. The the Supreme Court's like, yeah, you guys go back. The Minister of Defense is like, no, fuck that. And then he orders the army to demolish the village, which they did on Christmas. Okay. Now. Hey, you know how it is, right? Sometimes (laughs) you allow people to return. Sometimes you just destroy their entire village. It could go either way. But but also, like, the outrageous thing about this is the clear refusal by the Minister of Defense to enforce an Israeli Supreme Court decision. I mean, that's not how a democracy is supposed to work. There's supposed to be a balance of powers. There's supposed to be a judicial branch, an executive branch, a legislative branch, and everybody has their role. And you have to honor the decisions that come out of the other branches insofar as that is their power that is granted to them under the constitution, under the, you know, the structures of your state. It it's it's insane to me that you can engage in this type of like rogue behavior, right? As a minister of defense and just be like, no, that doesn't matter. I'm just going to decide, right? That goes just flagrantly against what the Supreme Court orders. And then there's like, it it just doesn't matter. Yeah, the Supreme Court in Israel is like a stop sign in Los Angeles. Pretty much just a suggestion. (laughs) So, okay. So that's what happened to Akrit. But what happened to Kufr Birim? In 1953, their case was still pending before the Supreme Court. While the case was pending, the Israeli army leveled the village in order to prevent the inhabitants from returning. So they're like, we're not even going to let this get to a decision. Like, just level it so that it's totally moot. What are we even talking about here? When Ben-Gurion was asked to comment on the destruction of these two villages, he explained 
Quote, these are not the only villagers living a long way from their home villages. We do not want to create a precedent for the repatriation of refugees. End quote. Even though the Israeli Supreme Court had already ruled and created the precedent. He was like, we don't want to... Yeah, we're not we going to honor the precedent. We don't want to create a precedent by honoring the precedent. Right. You know? By honoring the, the decisions of the law. It's insane. When you, when, you, when you read about the specific cases, you feel like it's just this mafia that's using the law to perpetuate injustice and deciding that it can steal people's houses and expel them and then writing it down on a piece of paper being like, it's the law. I can do it. You know what I mean? Yeah. Insanity. Bob Saget has a really good joke where he's like, men can breastfeed. I read that. Um, well, I wrote it. I wrote it down and then I read it. <laughs> right. That is Zionism in a nutshell. Yeah. That's Zionism and men, in a nutshell. Men breastfeeding. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and that. Now we got, we're at the final phase of the land theft process which takes place in late July 1960, where the Knesset establishes a unified land administration department that successfully dispossesses Palestinians and transfers their property rights to the state. What this legislation does is it prohibits Palestinians from owning, leasing, or working on 97% of the state-held land. So any of the land that wasn't already seized in the absentee properties law or the third phase where they basically declared certain areas as closed areas for military purposes, any of that leftover land where Palestinians were still on their land, they're like, yeah, now all of that goes to the state except for 3% of the land. These measures, together with a series of other regulations, dispossessed Palestinians of approximately 2 million acres of fertile land without discrimination. So whether they were refugees who had fled or those who remained on the land of Palestine within the 48 borders. So this final phase of land theft by the law essentially formalizes the theft of 97% of the land of 48 from Palestinians. They're not allowed to work on it. They're not allowed to own it. They're not allowed to lease it leaving Palestinians in 48 with a mere 3% of land. Another thing that I learned was that a few thousand Palestinians actually tried to go back. They actually physically tried to walk back to Palestine from where they were in exile. And in June 1948, the chief of staff by the name of Yigal Yadin gives orders to prevent the return of Palestinian refugees, quote, by every means. So in a span of 12 years, from 1948 and on, an estimated 3,000 to 5,000 Palestinian refugees were killed by Israeli troops along the 1949 armistice lines as they were trying to return back to Palestine. So people who tried to return were actually murdered. Now, that being said, some refugees did manage to return to their homes and their lands. But the new state of Israel considers those returnees, quote unquote, infiltrators, and basically would conduct sweeps of Palestinian villages suspected of harboring these infiltrators. Infiltrators? Yeah. You know, it's like, 
Well, you know, we talk often about how Zionists are really good at projection. And as I was reading this section, I'm sitting here thinking like, this is all projection. Like they are just projecting onto us what they have already done. Like they're calling us infiltrators. They literally arrived here from Europe. They literally just got here. On boats. On boats. And they were like, and, this house and is And stole mine. the houses that people welcomed them into. Palestinians housed Jewish refugees from the Holocaust. And then those same people stole those houses. Yeah. I remember when we had Anwar Hadid on, he was talking about how his father, Mohammed Hadid's family, welcomed Jewish refugees into their home who took their home and made them refugees. I think about that all the time. I think about it all the time, too. How are you going to infiltrate your own house? How do you infiltrate your own house? That's your house. You got the key. You got the deed. It's so weird. You've been living there for generations. Your, Your grandpa probably built it with his bare hands. It's honestly like as a collective, we've been gaslit for over 70 years. Yeah. Like three generations or four of Palestinians have been gaslit. Thought we only had oil for eight nights, but turns out gaslighting for years. Yeah. That's what it feels like. It it really feels like we've just been gaslit. We've just been sold this bizarre reality that we have to just like accept that denies us all of our rights. And if we try to challenge it in any way, we're called terrorists. So it's like, okay, so where do we go? What do we do? Where do we stand? Where can we, can I sit here? Like, (laughs) you know, and, and that is what we call democracy. Yeah, exactly. Obviously the apartheid state continues in its, in its attempts to regulate this question of refugees. Professor Noura writes that Israel needed a more systematic way to distinguish those Palestinian natives who had never left from the ones who left and returned, aka the infiltrators. And writing numbers on their arm didn't sit well. Yeah. So they were like, well, what are we going to do? Okay, so we're going to use the law again. So what they decided to do would be to extend universal citizenship to all of Israel's inhabitants, because that would immediately mark out the Palestinian infiltrators. But they were like, ooh, but that's also a problem because then we're not going to be treating the Jewish Israelis with privilege because if these remaining Palestinians get citizenship, then they'll be equal. So they're like, okay, so what we're going to do is we're going to pass two laws. First, the law of return, which was passed in 1950, and then the nationality law, which was passed in 1952. So what do these two laws do? The law of return creates this category of Jewish nationality, which entitles Jews all over the world to immediate Israeli citizenship and financial benefits as soon as they arrive in Israel. We've talked about this before extensively. If you're Jewish anywhere in the world, you can show up tomorrow and they'll give you a passport. They'll probably give you an apartment. They'll give you some cash. They'll give you subsidized housing. If you want to go live on a settlement, even better. Your kids will get like, you know, free education, all sorts of things. Yeah. It's like being a high roller in Vegas. Yeah. But you're on a You show up and they're like, we've got a bunch of other people's shit for you. Yeah, exactly. 
Okay. So what does the nationality law do? The nationality law repealed the Palestinian citizenship order of July 24th, 1925, which was a regulation of the British mandate that had granted both native Palestinians and Jewish immigrants the status of citizens and nationals of Palestine. The nationality law makes it so that all those people that were nationals previously of Palestine, all of a sudden, no longer have nationality. They were denationalized. Okay. So whereas previously under the British mandate, the indigenous Palestinians and the Jewish immigrants could obtain and did obtain nationality and citizenship. Now we repeal that law. So we make it impossible for Palestinians to get citizenship. And because we have created the law of return, we have provided an easy one-stop shop for Jews to get nationality. So now the only people that can get nationality are immigrant Jews. Let's talk about the very narrow category of Palestinians that were allowed to become nationals under the nationality law. So under the 1952 nationality law, becoming a citizen of Israel was possible only for Palestinians and their descendants who were present in Israel between 1948 and 1952. If you weren't there between 1948 and 1952, aka the majority of the Palestinian population at the time because they were expelled by the Zionists, then you have no right to nationality. If you somehow manage to remain, if you're a part of the minority of Palestinians who remained on the land from 1948 till 1952, you can apply for nationality under this law. Hey, if there was a shootout in your house and you went outside during the shootout, it's our house now. Exactly. So basically, the Palestinians who could not meet the criteria of the 1952 nationality law were rendered stateless. And many of those Palestinians, if not the majority, are stateless until today. My grandparents are part of that. They are alive and they are in Kuwait, and they are stateless. They don't have passports. My aunt, same thing. She doesn't have a passport. If you are not born in a place where there is a path to citizenship for stateless people, then you still, as of today, 2021, you don't have a passport. Not because you don't come from someplace, you do, but the state that was set up on your land expressly has discriminatory laws that prevent you from applying for citizenship, whereas other people who are not from that land can come there and get that benefit. Yeah. Meanwhile, settlers from all over the world have multiple citizenships, you know, American citizenship. A lot of them do. They got the Israeli passport. Some of them have others as well, like from Europe. You know what I mean? It's like a lot of options for those people. Yeah. You know, what's crazy too. <laughs> the definition of who is a, who is Jewish under the nationality law is very liberal. Oh, yeah, that's the only liberal law they've got. If you're Jewish if you're born of a Jewish mother, or you converted to Judaism and you're not a member of another religion, or you are a child or grandchild of a Jew, the spouse of a Jew, the spouse of a child of a Jew. Hold on. The spouse of a child of a Jew. How does that work? If you ever met a Jew, (laughs) if a Jew, if a Jew ever whispered in your ear, what is the spouse of a child of a Jew? Can we figure that math problem out? Yeah. 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 So the spouse, I'm married, the the child, right? I'm married. Let's work our way back up. I'm married to the child. 
Yeah. And Phil is the child of a Jew. Right. So I get I get to be a Jew in that scenario and get citizenship. Right. Spouse of a child of a Jew. And that's a marriage. That's a marriage triangle. And the spouse of a grandchild of a Jew. Yeah. That's a lot of people. The spouse of a grandchild. Of Same a thing. Jew. I'm married to Phil, but Phil's okay. grandmother is a Jew. I always joke that all the Palestinian refugees should convert to Judaism in mass. Go back, get our land. I mean, Change the laws of is, Israel. Go back, convert is back a, uh, to Islam and Christianity. That is a legal loophole, and Jews love that. So The Zionists love that. Well, Jews do too. You know what I mean? <laughs> okay, you can say that. Um, Zionists don't care about legal loopholes. Zionists don't care about the law at all. Eventually in 1966, the Israeli government lifts the martial law. And they do so because they view the Palestinian population as sufficiently controlled by that point in time. PLL said, hold my Molotov. Martial law regime had established a stark native settler binary articulated in security terms. The Palestinian native presence constituted an active frontier of and challenge to Zionist settler sovereignty. And the structure of permanent emergency made Palestinian natives a security threat because of their existence. And so this is, again, something that we have seen before. Professor Noura speaks about how in British imperial practice, the ability to define a national threat and declare an emergency is within a sovereign's exclusive purview. And Israel successfully declared an 18-year national emergency and oversaw a military legal regime that ensured the forced exile of refugees and the removal and dispossession of the Palestinians that remain. When we speak about an ongoing Nakba, it's very much an ongoing Nakba because the measures that are taking place at the level of the state continue in the aftermath of 48. And by the time the state of emergency ends, Israel has solidified this racialized structure now with all of these laws that we've just spoken about. So now this this system of segregation, discrimination, racism is embedded into the civil law framework, and it ensures Palestinian exclusion from state benefits and from being really full citizens as to the ones that remain. Last thing is that one year after dismantling the military regime that subjugates Palestinian citizens of the state in 1948, Israel applied the military regime to another set of Palestinians, aka those residing in the territories that Israel had not conquered in 48, but would conquer in 1967. So they end the state of emergency in 48, and they go, actually, we're now going to declare a state of emergency over these other remaining territories, which in 1967, they would invade and occupy until today. And we got to remind people, it was not a defensive war. We spoke with Miko Pellet, son of General Matty Pellet, who had the minutes from the meeting notes where they talked not about a threat at all. The word threat did not come up. They talked about opportunities. Yeah. So I hope that was helpful. I hope that clarifies you know this this period of history and i hope people are outraged because this is what this state was founded on you know in 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 my anti-war days when i was 
I, on my college campus protesting the wars and are you are you pro-war these days <laughs> no but i'm not, I'm, just I'm, not the- I'm not out in as in as many rallies protesting the occupations of iraq and afghanistan we had this slogan that we would chant at our rallies uh, on my college campus and it's no justice no peace and i think what we covered today is a perfect illustration of why there will never be peace so long as Palestinians continue to be expected to totally agree with their expulsion from their land and their deprivation of civil, political, economic rights. And that is, to me, the thing that is probably the most misunderstood when we look at the mainstream media coverage of what's happening in Palestine. They don't understand what the initial injustice is. They don't get it. It's never provided as context for their reporting. And so because they start the story in a place where you're missing that context, you fail to understand the injustice that has taken place, why Palestinians are upset, and what are the rights that we have been deprived of and that we continue to be deprived of. And so long as that context is missing, people are not really going to understand what's at stake and what needs to change. It's very much an applicable slogan to this to this situation. If there's no justice, there will be no peace. And the injustice has been ongoing for many, many, many decades. And it, as we have seen today, is taking place in a creeping manner, just enough so that so that you know the world isn't so outraged as to put pressure on Israel to stop, but also just enough that they are able to continue to make gains in the establishment of their settler colony and, and the entrenchment of the settler colony. And that's the situation that we have today. You went and uh, did an in-depth expose in your wheelhouse, which is the law. Let's bring it over to where I'm relevant. On TikTok, <laughs> there, <laughs> there is a former TikTok moderator who says that workers were told to leave up videos that would be positive for Israelis, but to take down videos that shed light on the Palestinian narrative. It was printed on abc.net.au, which is an Australian broadcast network. Interview was done by Hack. That's the name of the outlet. So the former moderator has given Hack a unique and exclusive insight into the company's notoriously secret processes around deciding what ends up in a user's feed. It is her personal account of what went on. This whistleblower actually adds to the growing accusations that the app is using its powerful algorithm to silence political movements. So in 2020, an individual by the name of Gadir Ayed, who is an Iraqi person living in the UK. I don't I don't know why they said an, an Iraqi person like that. You yeah, know I, I mean? was going to say, did you say that? Because that's so awkward. No, I didn't. That's the that's the verbiage from the article. They could have just said she's Iraqi. Can you imagine an American person, a French yeah. person? So weird. Like, like they just had to like 
clarify that she's a person anyways <laughs> right like we wouldn't have known because she's yeah. just iraqi <laughs> an iraqi person living in the uk was looking for work through a jobs agency in london and didn't even have tiktok on her phone but she ended up getting a role as a tiktok content moderator in the arabic language team based in london in december 2020 a few months earlier, TikTok moved its moderation teams from China and made them, quote, region-oriented, meaning staff assesses content from particular areas with their own policies in the relevant languages. Ogadier said her team of around 50 staff was moderating content from the Israel and Palestinian territories and was a combination of Arabic and Hebrew speakers. She said they were known in the company as the Israel team. Interesting. When I first started, this is a quote, when I first started, there were a lot of music videos, there were fashion videos, and there were a lot of videos regarding Palestine and Israel's situation, she told Hack. Gator said the moderation process happened in two stages. In the first stage, videos are moderated by an independent group, so it's not moderated by TikTok moderators because sometimes there are really sensitive videos, such as violence or sexual videos, that we can't be exposed to, she said. Although videos were supposed to be filtered through external moderators before reaching TikTok staff, that's not always the case. So with regard to moderation of Palestinian content, five months into Gadier's job at TikTok in April 2021, the violence escalated the worst since 2014. One difference during the, this violence was the use of TikTok as a key battleground to control the public narrative. At that time, a video reportedly of Arab teenagers in East Jerusalem slapping two Orthodox Jewish boys on public transport went viral on the app. Israeli police arrested more than 50 young Palestinians, alleging they shared the video and two teenagers accused of being involved in the incident. Israeli security services said the TikTok video created motivation for more violence between Jewish extremist groups and Palestinian people, but the extent to which the app played a role in what occurred is unclear. Also, the neighborhood of Sheikh Jarrah was being ethnically cleansed, and an Israeli court was considering forcibly removing Palestinians from their home. The weeks of violence which followed led to multiple injuries and death. Israel carried out hundreds of airstrikes in Gaza. Yadir's team had to moderate TikTok videos based on policies created by senior staff within the Israel team. As I said, it was region-based moderation. So, for example, the policies in Europe would be different from those in Palestine. Yadir said her regional team and bosses were predominantly Israelis, even though they were also moderating TikTok videos from Palestine. The advisors, the policy advisors, the policymakers were Israelis, and most of the management were Israelis, she said. And none of the Arabs progressed to any senior position at the company in that group. Dr. Bondi Kay said this could all show TikTok has been facing political pressure to suppress content critical of the state of Israel. In May, Israel's defense minister, Benny Gantz, asked Facebook and TikTok to remove posts, which he said might incite violence against the country. She said seniors in her regional team gave moderators a list of banned organizations, and if they came up on TikTok, that video would have to be removed and tagged as terrorism.
several Palestinian resistance groups were on that list, including Hamas and Israeli opposition groups. They all had to be removed, she said. Accounts were being blocked. Videos were being removed just in order to act like there was nothing going on and silence the Palestinian voice. Several influencers on TikTok posted about their videos being taken down, accounts being banned when they post in favor of Palestinians. Rashida Tlaib, the first Palestinian U.S. congresswoman, also called on TikTok, along with other social media sites, to stop censoring Palestinian political speech. Last year, TikTok apologized for suppressing posts with the hashtag Black Lives Matter and George Floyd after thousands of creators took to the platform to protest about their videos being suppressed or accounts being banned. The Australian Strategic Policy Institute, the ASPI, conducted the first academic investigation into the censorship on TikTok and found hashtags about mass detention of LGBTI and anti-Russian government videos were among those being suppressed. Hack put all these concerns to TikTok, but the company did not answer questions about how Palestinian and Israeli content was moderated. While all of that is happening... Palestinian content is being censored on TikTok and material favorable to the Zionist state is being promoted. The Jerusalem Post reported on November 6th that a military officer received a certificate from the army for promoting Israel on her TikTok. The army is handing out like participation certificates in TikTok. You know, it's interesting. Let me just really quickly, yeah. they will, they recruit influencers from all over the world to come and do like army TikToks. Basically they'll have, there's a specific like subsection of girls in the army who don't actually do any army work. They just post TikToks in uniform, basically. Makes sense. This particular account that got this military officer an award had amassed 1.7 million followers, which was more than the IDF spokesperson or the prime minister. Sergeant Yael Derry, military police officer, received this unique certificate of appreciation for promoting Israel and the Israeli army to her 1.7 million followers on TikTok. She uploaded many videos throughout her military service. Some of them depicted her day-to-day training and tasks, while others showed her answering her followers' questions, usually those based on strong anti-Israel sentiment. In one video, she is seen dancing with fellow soldiers while a sentence appears. Questions we get when people hear we are in the Israeli army. The first question is, how many children did you kill today? She answers, zero. We are actually saving them. Uh, Joseph Goebbels would be very proud. A different video begins with the heading, things people tell us when they hear that we are in the Israeli army. These include, my grandmother is older than your country, to which she replies, but still, we have a country. Massive slam dunk. Yeah, <laughs> what is that? Another another comment that she has received was, Israel brings models in your in uniform to join its it's army. You are not real soldiers. To which she answers, we models? No. 1.7 million followers. We models? No. Another question she has received. What is it like to live in a stolen country? She replied, I don't know. You tell me. You know what Zionism is like? Zionism is like, I know you are, but what am I? Like if Zionism had to be like, <laughs> if Zionism had to be like a childhood insult, 
That's the one that it is. <laughs> are you forced to be in the army? To which she replied, no, we are defending our country. Anyway, so um, her senior. From what? Yeah. Children? Her, her senior in, 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 the, in the army awarded her with a certificate, which was the first of its kind, the first of its kind in the army. And he said, I think you did a great service to the military. And this is an opportunity to thank you for this. The certificate noted her contribution to the strengthening and the improvement of the reputation of the military. There you have yeah. it, folks. Propaganda. When we, say, when we say that they are going hard on TikTok, we are not like this is not just like our opinion. They are literally hard handing out everywhere. awards. They're literally handing out awards. They love yeah. they love competing for prizes, you know. So right. So there you have it. Certificate of appreciation for promoting us, you know, the apartheid state. Yeah, just another piece of paper they printed that means nothing. But that they said means something. They're like, this TikTok award is the legal basis for why you can't come back to your house. Exactly. <laughs> this TikTok award. <laughs> what a bunch of loony, loony tunes. Folks, that's been another episode of the Palestine Pod. Thank you all so much for listening and engaging with us. Please follow us on Instagram at the Palestine Pod. Check out our website and sources at www.palestinepod.com. Send us an email at palestinepod at gmail.com and check us out on Patreon at www.patreon.com slash Palestine Pod. Let's go. Thank you all so much for listening. Have a great day. What's the word I'm looking for? The the outbreak of the law. Okay, words. Air.